What I'd like to speak about this evening is the theme of the retreat, a passion for being awake. It's kind of interesting sometimes walking around Gaia House looking at what we might imagine is going on for those people around us, perhaps looking within ourselves and we might observe at times some rather serious looking faces, perhaps even we might say long faces. And sometimes in the silence and people do report the feeling of things being all very kind of restrained and uh, sort of almost inhibited in the, the, the seriousness of what's going on. And the question may well arise to us as it has to some of you. What has passion got to do with all of this? It does seem at times, sometimes, like what is being cultivated is almost the opposite of that. And in fact it's kind of interesting to see if we look at images of sort of of great masters from the Buddhist traditions, particularly from the uh, traditions coming from Southeast Asia, the Theravadan countries as they're called, and uh, sort of Burma, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, India to some extent, that the, the great masters all seem to have rather solemn faces. There doesn't seem to be a lot of fun going on or a lot of excitement in the air. In fact, it's uh, regarded as kind of bad form for the monks in Thailand to be caught smiling, at least in some of their views. And we might equally look at other traditions, the ecstatic traditions of Sufi practice and the, the mysticism of Islam the Sufi tradition and Advaita Vedanta masters from, from India or Taoists or other traditions we may have explored and these rather sort of joyous smiling toothy grins that sometimes glow from the pages it seems and we think that sounds, well that looks good that seems like something that's attractive to us but it's a kind of interesting question to look at. What is and where is the passion here in what we are doing? What is its place? I remember coming back from Asia after a period of intensive practice and um, coming to stay with a friend in London and a friend had a, a temporary housemate from Austria who was a dancer and a very fiery and passionate person. And... Uh, I remember Ava, after studying what I was doing, which seemed kind of strange to her, sort of sitting rather quietly in the corner for a lot of the day, it seemed, um, coming up to me and asking me, where is the passion in all of this? What you're doing? And, you know, in Dharma talks, talks about meditation teachings, Buddhism, we seem to hear a lot about quenching of passion, about the ending of desire, about not seeking for anything to be different than as it is. And of course there's a place to it, a place for all of that, and, and understood correctly the, the freeing of our being from the grip of craving and desire is actually the path to freedom. But when I was asked that question, it was actually quite interesting, I found myself even interested, that the degree of passion and enthusiasm that I found the reply coming from myself to that question, where is the passion in what you're doing here? It's 
rather quiet and perhaps even dull-looking exercise. It may appear from the outside. My response was that my passion in this was to, to, to find the end of suffering, to find the end of a sense of something missing or lacking in life, to, to come to the end of situations where I found myself or I found other people causing harm to themselves, harm to others, harm to myself. And that the amount of energy and, and clarity and commitment that that question brought forth from me was actually, it was actually something I hadn't quite seen before in that way. That sense of just how strongly one's heart can be committed to something. And how we can understand that as an expression of passion, of, of an energy that can actually carry us incredible distances. And so the role of passion in practice is actually really important. The, the word perhaps that's closest to it in the language of the Buddha, the Pali language, which is an ancient and now non, it's not in sort of current use, but is the language of the Buddhist scriptures. It, it, the word is chanda, which means passion or zeal or enthusiasm for something. And it could be used to express a, a quality that really has a love of freedom, that has a, a real heartfelt desire for understanding the truth and for, for really being awake, to really awakening to what is possible for us. This, this quality that really brings us back, brings us home to what is truly important in our lives, to what we feel is truly worthy of our passion, of our energy, of our commitment, our enthusiasm. And it would seem to me that this is the end of that which is unsatisfactory, the end of a life that feels bound in limitation or in separation and disconnection. In the Buddhist tradition, one hears the words Buddha and Buddhism and may or may not connect with such words, such concepts. I find it kind of useful to actually translate them into what they mean. Buddha means awakened one, one who has awakened to the truth. And Buddhism whether one has some affinity for this particular tradition or that particular word or not, could be understood as awakening. And I find that whereas Buddhism doesn't really do much for me as, a, as an idea, the idea of awakism, what is it to make being awake what we're interested in? And then we can leave behind all the baggage that goes with organized religions and history that piles up on them. And maybe more directly to the heart of the matter. It's important to understand in saying that 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 movement of, of enthusiasm, of energy, of passion, we could say, when it's born of a self-centeredness, when it's born of a, of a contraction around the the importance of just me as the only thing that matters or what is mine as the only thing which matters, then it actually becomes distorted. It actually leads us into suffering, into pain, into conflict. 
But when it's not actually so much a self-directed or a self-centered movement, but it, it more it's a movement of vision, a movement of possibility, a movement of sensing and aspiring to what is possible, not just for ourselves, but for all living beings. And even though not knowing what that might be, nonetheless, sensing and listening to that sense which aspires to it, which recognises that possibility. This is one of the most powerful things we can find as a as a beacon, as a light in our life that can guide us. Not to something which we know what it will be, but that just speaks to us about possibility. <coughs> so what is it that we do with our lives? What is it that we've observed ourselves doing here? It seems that so much of what we do, so much of what we expend our energy on, is really quite simple. We spend our time seeking to gain, to pursue and to gain that which we want, to avoid or to get rid of that which we do not want. In the belief that this will lead us to satisfaction, that this will bring us happiness, we might think, how much time in our life so far, up till now, have we spent pursuing, trying to get what we want, or trying to get away from that which we fear? How much time even in just this retreat have we found ourselves doing that? And in doing that, we find ourselves constantly fascinated with the past, trying to figure out how in the past it was that we failed or succeeded to get what we wanted or avoid what we didn't want. And then somehow trying to translate those lessons from the past or those experiences from the past into how in the future we will get what we want or we will manage to avoid what we don't want. That the significance of the past is so much born of the promise it seems to offer us that in it we can find the answer to fixing our future. And yet, the result of that fascination is that we're constantly caught up in this movement of fear, this movement of desire that moves from the past to the future, from the future to the past, that never comes to any resolution, but just seems to consume our mind, our heart and our life. If we see this, it might seem like rather bad news. And yet it's important to see if this is so. Because in seeing it, what we also perhaps can see, what we can also perhaps hear from within ourselves, is that that our possibilities, our potential, is not limited just to this. That we can, in fact, in the very midst of our circumstances, rise above them to discover an authentic and a free way of being in this world. That 
if we found that our life so far has not brought us where we wish to be, that all that pursuing in desire and running away in fear has not succeeded in bringing us to a place of peace and well-being, then perhaps we can learn from that that maybe it is never going to. Although it seems to hold out the constant promise that if we just do a little bit more of that, we'll get there. But wouldn't we have got there already if that was so? And doesn't that just have the effect of constantly projecting into the future the possibility of our happiness, of our finding a quality of peace and well-being in the midst of our life? If we sense this possibility, we might equally sense an urgency, a sense of really seeing rather clearly what needs to be done, what needs to be attended to, what must be given priority. There's a, a story in the Bhagavad Gita, a great Indian classic spiritual text, in which a conversation occurs between Arjuna, who is the hero of the story, and Krishna, who represents wisdom. And Arjuna asks Krishna, who is, who is a god and who can see all things, he says, what in your vast view of this world and this universe is the most wondrous and amazing thing? What is the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna replied, the greatest miracle is that while all around them, people, human beings, see others dying, they somehow believe it will not happen to themselves. And there's a way in which we all too easily live our life as though we think we've got forever. But we don't. It's not to be gloomy or pessimistic. It's simply the way it is. This gift, this opportunity of our life is not forever. And to see that, to recognize that, is to ask ourselves how we can make the best use of it right now. Because right now is the only moment that we are guaranteed. That our life is here and now. It cannot be found anywhere else. And when we sense this mortality, this this preciousness of the gift of life, it can bring from us a, a real sense of urgency, a sense of willingness to do what it takes, to live this life well, so that when this life ends, we won't be looking back with regret at what we didn't do. You know, it's said that nobody ever lies on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in the office. It's true. The Buddha once said, the failure to see the urgency of our human condition is to be like children playing with their toys in a house that is burning. And you know, as we sit here sometimes and we're finding that we're kind of half asleep, we're struggling with dullness and tiredness and weariness, what would happen if suddenly flames started licking through the door of the hall 
and we realized this building was on fire. We'll be sitting there saying, oh, you know, I didn't get enough sleep last night. Oh, it's been a hard week. It's been a hard life. No, it'll be like that. We would be awake. We would be alert. There would be heaps of energy. Now, of course, you know, we're not considering using those kind of extremes to generate that enthusiasm for practice. But it's interesting to see how when we recognize something that immediate is a threat to our well-being, even the continuance of this life, suddenly the system seems to have no shortage of energy. And connecting with this, this quality of, of, of energy, of passion, is born of recognizing that there is this urgency, that now is the only time we have to live our life and to learn what it means to live it well. And yet, all that urgency, all that energy that we might feel, and we might already feel like, I'm really trying to live my life well, I'm doing my best, I'm working at it, all too often it seems to be directed in a way that isn't so productive, that doesn't really seem to serve us. That doesn't really seem to answer the most important question. And so, it's like facing that sense of urgency. Often what we find ourselves coming experiencing is, well, I've got to get to this place, I've got to do something, I've got to get better at meditation, I've got to get enlightened, I've got to whatever it might be, I've got to get out of here and, you know, get to the beach. If this is my last day, I want to spend it in the sun, you know. Whatever my... You have to go quite a way to find the sun, I expect. But, you know. um, whatever it comes, we find the sense of wanting to get somewhere, wanting to do something. And it expresses this, this tendency of, again, pursuing things, trying to get something or get away from something else. That is often how we harness or seek to use the energy of our lives. It's sort of, it's a bit hopeless really doing it that way. It doesn't seem to get us anywhere. And there's a, there's a story which perhaps illustrates this a little. In the story, Mullah Nasruddin, who's a, uh, a Sufi teaching figure and regarded as both a wise man and a fool, is found by one of his friends in the evening on his hands and knees, searching under the streetlight on the side of the road outside his house. And his friend comes up to him and says, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? Nazaruddin responds, I'm looking for my key, I've lost my key. Will you please help me look for it? And so the friend gets down and he starts looking and they're looking through the rubbish and the stones and the dust and the rotten pieces of old food and other smelly things that they don't even want to think what they might be. And after they've been looking for a while, the friend starts to get a little bit weary of this and he says, Mullah, We've looked all through this area. I, I, we can't seem to find your key. Are you sure you lost it here? Nazarin says to him, Well, no, actually I lost it in the back garden, but the light's much better here. <laughs> and you know, sometimes we're looking in the place that seems easiest or most obvious to us. It's the place we're used to looking. It seems like the light is better there. We can see what we're doing. It's in the familiar territory. And yet, what we're looking for isn't going to be found there. If it was, we'd have found it by now. We'd have gone home. We'd have unlocked the door. 
So, rather than seeking to have a particular experience, to get our experience the way we want it, to fix it, to fix ourselves, to fix the world, we're asked, rather than that whole juggling act and that stress and that pressure and that struggle that it creates of trying to adjust the world, adjust other people, adjust ourselves to get a comfortable fit, when it seems like most of the evidence is telling us that some bits are going to fit comfortably and other bits just don't. Instead of struggling with that reality in our lives, actually just stopping to see, is there another way to approach this? Is there another way we can engage with our life? What would it be to no longer seek to manipulate our experience, to control it, to control even our inner life, but to actually look and see, how can I meet it? Meditation asks us to have a really clear intention, to be present, to be open, to connect with and to meet just what is, just as it is. And in that clarity of intention, which really is the basis of our practice, we equally need to be aware that if we have any investment or expectation that a particular result or experience will arise from either our intention or our engaging in that, then that is actually not going to serve us. To actually be able to apply ourselves in meditation is to have a clear vision of direction, a clear intention, and yet no investment in what happens then, in what happens next. So, we need to have the intention to be present. And yet, when we're not present, that's just what happens. We might wish to generate a sense of sort of kindness in the way we meet our experience. And yet, other times we might find ourselves struggling with it, angry with it, beating ourselves up, or imagining ourselves beating someone else up, in words or perhaps even worse. And yet, to see how this happens, to see that it just arises and that we can't necessarily control what happens. The intention is to be here, to be now. The reality is that sometimes that's possible and sometimes that's not. And yet, if we invest in getting it right and doing it perfectly, whatever that model might look like for us, good meditation, which usually really means pleasant meditation, but what we think is good meditation, which is also usually something that we're not getting very much of. That's the other defining characteristic of it, something we want more of than we're getting. Um, with that whole thing of good meditation, it creates a struggle. The same struggle we create in our lives when we say what is happening is not okay. As though the thing that is happening has the power to determine whether we will be happy or not, whether we will be at peace in this moment or not. To look and see how when we engage with our practice, we need to bring that motivation, that intention, and yet we need to hold it lightly as well. It's a bit like a guitar string. In order, and I'm quite unmusical, so I'm not sure if I'm qualified to make this statement, but anyway, it's a, it's a classic metaphor from the time of the Buddha. Um, he probably referred to a different stringed instrument, but in terms of tuning an instrument, if it's too slack, it makes really no sound at all. If it's too tight, it will snap. And yet, just the right amount of tension, it can produce a perfect note. 
And in our meditation, we're asked to find a balance between being relaxed and being at ease, and yet being engaged and connected and alert, so that we really apply ourselves with a clear intention, and yet we actually just let go of what comes out of that, what experience, what arises, what we see or what we don't see. We cannot control. We can influence what occurs through the qualities of heart and mind that we bring to this experience. And yet we cannot control it. To see this very clearly is an important lesson in humility and a profound lesson in the nature of the way things are. Because what's going on around us is clearly not in our control. And equally and somewhat more embarrassingly, what's going on inside us is not really under our control. And if we see that, then perhaps it's speaking to us of a different way of understanding what is going on within. And a different way of understanding how to be happy in the midst of all of this. So we are asked to find balance in our practice between not trying at all, becoming passive, just sort of sitting back and thinking, oh well, I'll just wait till, you know, lightning comes along and takes me away, or the clouds open up and sort of lightning strikes, just sort of hanging around. And on the other hand, feeling like, I've got to do it, I've got to make it happen, when's it going to happen? Been here three minutes and it hasn't happened. Four minutes, what's going on? Somewhere, and you know, sounds a little silly, doesn't it? But sometimes we see our minds moving between those extremes. One moment we're gung-ho and go for it. The next moment, oh, that was hard work. I think I'll take a nap. And we can live our lives in the same way. (coughs) And yet to find the place of balance between those two extremes. (coughs) To find the place of balance between those two extremes asks us to recognize that there is a profound potency in the attention that we bring to our experience. And we've already touched upon this. We've already spoken about this some. That when we start to find a balance between not engaging with our experience and on the, on the one hand and on the other hand sort of grabbing it by the throat and shaking it, squeezing the very life out of it, when we find a balance between those two places, we start to connect perhaps with a quality of presence that simply is there, that's alert and yet undemanding, that is connected without being attached, without being dependent on what is going on for that quality and that capacity to connect. And what we experience, you know, breath, thought, sound, sight, confusion, bliss, sadness, all of that is less significant in determining the quality of our life than what, and ha- what we bring to it and how we meet it. Our practice invites us again and again to cultivate a quality of wholeheartedness with which we meet our experience. A sense of receptivity of opening to it as it is just as it is that isn't born of passivity but born of recognizing that if this is how it is 
then in order to respond to it, we must meet it as it is. And then, if we need to respond, if we need to do something, we can move from that place of open acceptance and acknowledgement, of receptivity to our experience. And equally with that receptivity, having a real quality of interest to look and to see what's going on here. What is most true in this experience? Is it the story of our mind, the so-called stories of our life? Or is it simply that here and now, Something is occurring, whatever it might be, and it's being revealed. It's being revealed to ourselves, we might say, to this simple presence, we might equally say. And that revealing of our experience offers us not so much a place to dwell or to hang out in, but a in a way, a quality or a stance of being that we can connect with as we meet each moment of our life, as we meet the experience of what is happening. To, to see that this is a possibility for us, even if we just touch it for moments in a day or a weekend, speaks to us of a potential which we can tap. If we see, if we recognize, if we're honest and humble enough to recognize that our experience is not within our control, that we've told our mind to be quiet and it doesn't, that we've told our body to stay alert and it doesn't, sometimes we tell it to go to sleep and it doesn't, and yet in seeing that lack of control over the experience, to see that we do have a choice about the relationship we form to it, about the way we meet it. We do have a choice there. If we're present, if we're awake, if we're not conscious, if we're not aware of what's going on, then something really straightforward and simple happens. Depending on whether the experience that is happening is predominantly pleasant, unpleasant or neutral, one of three things happens. If it's pleasant, we basically want it, we want to keep it, we start trying to grasp hold of it with attachment. If it's unpleasant or painful, we basically start trying to get rid of it. We start trying to figure out how to avoid it to make sure it doesn't come back or it stops. And if it's a neutral experience, if it doesn't seem to be offering us anything or threatening us in any way, then we're just not interested and we disconnect. And Insofar as we're unconscious, our life is simply, for the most part, revolving around these three movements of grasping towards the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, or just being disconnected to the neutral. And we can see in our experience where it happens. We notice a painful knee or a difficult emotion arising, and immediately a sense of wanting it to go away. And yet there's another possibility. If we're actually there and we see what's happening, we see the wish for it to go away, we can also start to see how that wanting it to go away seems to be adding a whole layer of suffering and contraction and pain to the difficult experience. That isn't actually the difficult experience, but something we're doing with it or to it, and therefore to ourselves. And in seeing that, we might think, oh, maybe I could just be with this. What would that mean? To just be with this painful need. 
or this ache in my heart, this sadness, or this pain, whatever it might be. And in that just being with it, that that quality of being willing to open to it doesn't mean it goes away, it doesn't even mean it changes or becomes less intense, it may become stronger. But what happens is that we suddenly realise that we can be with it and that in our ability to be with it, we see that this experience does not have in itself the power to remove us from peace, to deny us a sense of ease, of well-being, of happiness. does not in itself have the power to bind us. But, of course, we need to be present, we need to be conscious to see that. If we're, if we're unconscious, as we are so much of the time, we just react, we just act out those patterns and tendencies in a hundred and one, a thousand and one different ways. And all the stories are unique. We've all got our own ones. Sometimes they're similar, sometimes they're quite different in the stories of the wantings and the not wantings, the past and the history of it all. But those patterns, those patterns we all share, the wanting, the not wanting, the disinterest and the disconnection. And if we look at them, we see how unsatisfactory it is to live that way, bound up in that. It's a tragedy. And sometimes we feel the tragedy of that, the sadness, the pain. Not to be disheartened by that, but to actually see that it's speaking to us. It's actually good sometimes to see what is difficult. Because it says, if we can see it, we don't need to be a prisoner of it. We can find other ways, other possibilities. So our practice is to simply see what is there. To let go of our tendency to want to push away one thing, to grasp after another, and see if we can meet it all with the same quality of interest, of openness, of presence. To make that quality of presence more important, more significant than what it is we are being present with or to. Now, of course, in the midst of all that, and we can talk about getting fired up for this, and, you know, really, yeah, let's, let's really do that. It sounds great. And sometimes, of course, you know, we're sitting there thinking, passion, enthusiasm, that doesn't sound like me. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite. It's kind of like, had enough of that, thank you very much. I just like to curl up and go to sleep. And that happens. And yet, even in that moment where we think, you know, I'm really not interested in meditation anymore, I've had a stomach full of us. Can we be interested in that? Could we just say, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I've been trying a bit too hard. Maybe I'm pushing myself too hard. Or maybe this is just another story coming up. And can I just see it? Can there be a quieter quality to the passion? You know, we have this idea of passion, it should be all rah-rah or enthusiasm or effort or energy and yet sometimes it's actually there's a quality of just gentle and steady dedication that's much quieter that's much simpler that doesn't sort of look like anything particularly inspiring and yet we can carry or can carry us through times when the energy isn't so strong times when we're not so clear 
just a willingness to meet this and this and this, whatever it might be. So to look at this tendency we have to catch hold of, to grasp onto our experience. Because that's what's happening when we're not present, is the mind is sort of contracting around something. It's grabbing hold of an experience. And it's sort of, you can tell it's contracting around it, because the kind of thoughts that occur tend to often sort of become more and more narrow and limited. We start recycling the same old story, the same old argument, the same old fantasy. Or perhaps it's a new one for a little while and it's you know, particularly exciting, and then it sort of starts to look like all the other ones. And we realize we've been sort of sold the same book on a different cover. And seeing, seeing that, that process of dwelling going on, it's not an accident that it occurs. It's like there's something it's offering to us. It's like it's holding out to us a promise. That if you think more about this, if you dwell more about this, if you live in this past and future world, that it's, there's something there for you. And to the extent that we believe that, we keep living there. When we see that perhaps there isn't so much there for us, it gives us the commitment to say, enough. To just let go. I mean, every time we get lost, we have to come back. We have to let go. Sometimes we feel like we actively do it because we can feel that sense of a pull and we say, no, I'm just going to let that go. Other times, of course, we feel the sense of the pull and we think, that sounds good, yeah, let's go. And it's kind of like we just jump on the train of our mind and go for a, a whirlwind ride. And we see that happen too, of course. But other times it's not like that at all. It just suddenly, we realize we're here, we're back. We have let go. It's happened. We didn't do anything. And it's sometimes kind of mysterious to reflect on that. There's this, this, this pattern and this tendency to grasp hold of. And in that grasping hold of, we see how it gives us a sense of meaning, a sense of who we are, a sense of direction in our life. I'm doing something here. I'm fixing this. I'm sorting out that. I'm going somewhere. Or I'm, at the very least, entertaining myself. And how there's a way in which it's very familiar and comfortable to us as a place to be. Even if at another level it's really uncomfortable because the content of some of it is excruciating. You know, it's kind of an amazing irony that sometimes some of our most painful stories we cling on to because they're familiar and therefore feel safe because at least we know when we're unhappy who we are. Like me, I'm the unhappy one. And we hold on to them because they seem to be offering us something. It's like looking for the key in the light where it isn't to be found. Because we're just a little too afraid to go out into the darkness where we know it is. At some level we know. But perhaps we don't yet trust. But even in the midst of that dwelling, sometimes just like a light breaking in the darkness, we're awake, we're here. What's happened when that occurs? The definition of it is that we weren't there the moment before. Conscious, we were unconscious. And then in the next moment, we're there. So we didn't do it, did we? We weren't there to do it. But something happened. It's like this, this light of awareness just 
cuts through that entanglement and shows us what's happening. Shows us that we're simply here. That this experience, this moment, is simply arising. And in seeing that, in seeing that, just that that quality of something that wakes up within us, to really notice that that happens. That we, we seek to cultivate it, we seek to develop it, and sometimes we can see that, and maybe even think that we're doing this. But surely if we were doing it, we'd you know, probably manage to do it a little more consistently, a little bit more predictably. So maybe we're not doing it, and yet it's happening. Maybe that tells us something about our life. We think we've got to do it. We work so hard at trying to do it well, and yet maybe that's not really the way to live. Maybe life can live itself, just as our breath can breathe itself. Now, for all our effort to sometimes get it right when we're meditating and we're actually paying attention to our breath, we find we think we should adjust it or fix it. Maybe we don't. But when we're totally, you know, lost, our breath just goes on perfectly fine. Seems to do without us quite well. Maybe that says something to us about the nature of our lives. But we tend to take it all so personally, don't we? We tend to think, I'm responsible for this. It's me that's doing good meditation. And we give ourselves a pat on the back when we think we're doing well. And of course when we do that, then we're condemned to have to give ourselves perhaps a slap on the wrist when we have obviously got it all horribly wrong and spaced out for a whole sitting. And we live in this dichotomy between success and failure because we think that we're doing it. We think it's me that's making it happen. But is it really? Of course, we are cultivating, in one way of speaking, we are cultivating qualities of heart and mind that are of benefit, that are of service to us, an open-heartedness, an attentiveness, a quality of presence. And yet, We aren't really making them happen, but we can see them when they arise. And in the very seeing of what is wholesome and what is positive, it actually becomes stronger simply in that seeing of it, in that recognizing what it offers us. And equally in seeing the patterns and the tendencies that don't serve us, the qualities that undermine our well-being, the places of contraction and stuckness. It's not so much that we have to set out to fix them, but simply in seeing how stuck we may be in them, or seeing how they don't serve us in that very seeing when it's born of a willingness to see rather than an aversion to or a judgment of those conditions or those experiences. When it's born of that, just the seeing of it actually starts to undermine them. So the tendency of dwelling in our mind, we don't have to fix it. But if we see, through seeing when it occurs, how it is un- really doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't really feel like it's a place we want to live our lives. Just that seeing itself starts to undermine its power, starts to dissolve the, the trance or the spell that it casts over us when it seems to promise us something that it can't deliver. So that, so that our practice is one of waking up to where we are, to what is, what is happening, and to see that what is happening is just happening. Just one moment at a time, one breath at a time, 
It's just happening. It just keeps happening. There's this flow of life moving. And yet we have this incredible capacity to witness it, to be awake in the midst of that flow. But we need to ask ourselves again, is this what we really want in our lives? Are we interested in waking up? Are we interested in seeing beyond the surface appearance of our life? To actually plunging into the depths of what it is to be alive. To be willing to include even those difficult places that we touch. To see the depression that fear, that exhaustion, anger and rage, painful and difficult as they are, and worthy and needing of our attention and our care as they are, are not in themselves able to bar us from being present. They don't in themselves put it outside of the realms of possibility. All too often, when we find these things arising, these difficult conditions, we sort of say, I can't be present with this. It's not possible. And really what we're saying is not actually the truth of the matter. Because what we're saying is, this is really difficult, I don't like it, and I don't want to be present with it. No, I can't. Because it's there, you're there. It's happening. So, in dealing with the difficult, to actually ask, is it possible simply to be present with this too. And what is there in that willingness to be present? What it actually starts to express is our own inner authority to not be a victim of what is occurring within us or around us. To see it as that which is arising without having to make it the definition of our totality or a statement of absolute who we are or what is possible for us. I've got this, therefore I can't be happy or I can't meditate or I can't be present. And that it leaves us perpetually disconnected from our life. And that the place of reconnection is actually the willingness to meet that which perhaps we do not wish to. Not to say we have to spend all our day or all our life getting into it, or working on it, but when it's there, to meet it, to see it for what it is, an experience, perhaps an incredibly difficult one, and yet to see, is it possible simply to be with this? And in this, to trust the truth of that experience, that this is here, and that therefore there is a rightness, that there is a meaningfulness to the invitation it extends to us to see what is possible for us here in meeting it, in perhaps learning from it in that experience. To really respect each moment, to really respect each experience is to allow ourselves to receive from it what it offers to us. To not say of any moment or of any experience that this has nothing to offer me. Because each moment offers us the possibility to be awake. And this is an offering which is 
beyond compare when we understand what that means. There's a story about a, um, an Indian spiritual seeker in India going to his, his guru and saying, guru being his, his teacher, his spiritual master, saying, after all these years of practice, I'm totally committed. I want to know the truth. I want to see God more than anything else. Nothing else matters to me. And this guru said, is that so? Well, come with me then. Took him out to the ocean. Walked him out, waist deep. And then suddenly pushed his head under the water and held it there for two minutes. And he pulled it up and said, what do you want? I want air! I want air! He says, when you want to know the truth as much as you wanted air just now, come back. And it's kind of interesting how that's sometimes a metaphor for us. We're interested in the truth, we're interested in discovery or in finding perhaps another way. Yet as soon as it gets difficult, what we basically want is to get back to where it's comfortable again. So easily and so often. So, you know, we really have to ask, is it worth this work? Is it worth this challenge? Is it worth having to face so many challenging situations and circumstances that we might experience? That constant tendency of the mind to get lost, to go whizzing off in all directions, and the effort it takes to come back, it can seem it can seem sometimes that it's too much effort, that it's maybe not worth it. And yet, you know, it's a certain amount of work to just come back, to be present in a given moment. And sometimes it seems like it's just easier if we just space out, or if we just allow our reactions to ride, to you know, run the show, to ride off with us on their on their back. And in a moment, to, on a moment-to-moment level, perhaps it is easier just to let that happen. But for the whole of our life, it's much more difficult. It's incredibly difficult to live our life unconsciously, caught up in the habits and the reactions. It is the difficulty of our life that we do that. And so we're asked on a moment-to-moment level to make that small effort to be here and to open to what is. Because when we don't, we find so much suffering in our lives. And when we don't, we equally don't give ourselves the opportunity to connect with that quality of presence which can transform our life without changing any of its content. To have and to live with a love of freedom is to live our life with a wish and a willingness to make that our priority, to see where and how we become bound and to find ways to release ourselves from it, from that bondage. To, to listen and to trust, to trust our heart that speaks to us of possibility. That speaks to us of the possibility of discovering another way of being in this world. When we don't feel satisfied with our life, 
it perhaps is speaking to us. I mean, if we were just quite happy to be miserable, things would be okay, wouldn't they? Now, if we didn't mind suffering, it would be great. But the very fact that something in us realizes that maybe it doesn't have to be this way, but seeks to go about addressing it in a way that doesn't work, doesn't mean that it's hopeless. It means we need to look for another way. And to make the commitment of our life, a commitment to be awake in our life, in the midst of our life, is to give ourselves an incredible gift of possibility. Meditation teachings, Dharma teachings, are concerned not just with getting comfortable or having a peaceful experience now and then, but with truly understanding what it is that causes suffering and what it is that liberates us from that suffering. It's Our practice is really concerned with dissipating the illusions under which we labour, awakening to the way things really are. And in that awakening, awakening to a quality of freedom in life that is not bound by what is going on, that is not bound by the difficulties we may experience, that is not limited by the human limitation of birth and death. And and in that, finding equally a quality of deep and profound caring for others and for ourselves that is born of recognizing our true relationship to life and to each other, that is born of understanding that we all share this precious gift of consciousness, this precious possibility to be awake. And in sharing that, this is something shared more profound than any of the things which separate or distance us from each other. And a deep love of freedom asks us to live just for this moment, to live right here where we are and to be willing to die to every other moment. If we're willing to do that, we can discover that which is not subject to birth and death. That which is free in the very midst of this life, which is the very nature of life itself. And a passion for being awake is that which brings us to seek and to discover what this might be for ourselves. But not just for ourselves, but equally for the well-being of all of life. So could we just sit quietly together for a minute or two, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.